0: or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him... If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then this morning we're going to continue to look at Paul's time in prison in Israel before he was transferred to Rome. And then he writes the clock, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in For the sake of his body, that is, church, of which I am a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So let's rest in that for a minute. Before we sing together, let's rest in that poem about the preeminence of Christ. So I would just invite you to quietly in your heart confess Jesus, you are the first, you are the last, you are the Alpha and Omega. All things that have been created were created by You. Reconciliation between fallen humanity and fallen creation and God being restored is only possible through the blood of Jesus. Father, if there's any other smaller lowercase g God that we worship, any idol in our lives this morning that would keep us, that would bind us from being free in Your presence, from truly adoring You, or as the psalmist writes repeatedly, ascribing to You the glory due Your name. God, we repent of that thing, that idolatry, we place it aside and we pray that we would fully be able to focus on You, that we would love You, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and worship You, Psalm 96 begins by saying, Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing a new song. Ascribe to Him the majesty and the honor due His name. So Ford Church or visitors, wherever you come from this morning, we invite you to join together corporately in singing new songs of worship to God and ascribing glory and honor to His precious Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're continuing in Acts The last few chapters in Acts um, are stories that belong together. So we're covering larger portions of Scripture than we typically do today. We're going to be in Acts uh, 25 and 26. When we wrap up Acts in a couple weeks, we've been in Acts for well over a year now. When we wrap up Acts in a couple weeks, we're going to go into a series on the church. And uh, we're also inviting our congregation to read Francis Chan's letter together. And then at the end of the summer, early fall, we're going to have um, a gathering on an evening, and you'll get information about this, where we're going to invite the church to come together and to process uh, that book that book together. So we'd really recommend uh, you read it. I've heard a number of you that it has really challenged you uh, challenged challenge your personal faith in some really helpful ways. Um, I've been reading it, and it's been uh, challenging mine as well, so I'd encourage you uh, to pick up a copy of that and be... All right, let's, um, let's be quiet for a minute and uh, just in your own hearts as we transition to, to the word of God this morning. I want you to make this extremely personal, very personal. I just want you to invite God to speak through his word to you. Can you do that? Not DJ, not the sermon series, not the program. That God, that the Holy Spirit, through his word, the reigning word of Jesus Christ would speak to you. Today, So be quiet for a minute and just invite the word of God to speak. Father, we invite you to speak to each one of us this morning. Tether us to your presence, God, to your word. Shape us and teach us. Your word is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. With precision, it comes in and cuts us. With precision, it pierces us to the innermost parts of our souls. God, if we allow it to, it shapes us in life-giving ways uh, like nothing else can. So we invite that process to take place this morning as we look at your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to try the wired mic. So I'm going to be on a chain this morning. I'll probably be, I won't be able to do my normal, my normal path. That's all right. All right, so Acts 25 and 26. Last week, when we were in uh, 23 and 24, I glossed over a statement that this week I was thinking about a lot. And it was a simple statement where it said that Paul continued in prison for two years in this way. So uh, Festus would call, uh, or Felix would call um, Paul before him, and he was hoping for a bribe. And Paul obviously didn't give him a bribe. And this continued for two years. So for two years, Paul is in the governor's palace, stuck, waiting. Jesus has already appeared to him and told him that he was going to send him to Rome. So day by day, day after day, uh, Paul is waiting for this to come to fulfillment. Now, I was thinking about two years, which, you know, if you have a child, two years goes super fast. But if you think about, you know like our baby was just born yesterday and all of a sudden they're two years old, right? That, that process is so fast. So two years isn't that long of a time, but if you're waiting for something, if you're stuck, two years can feel like an eternity. You know what I mean? Like when you're, when you're waiting, when you're waiting to be set free, when you're waiting for God to fulfill what he said he was going to do. I was thinking about, I, I haven't even been at Parker Ford for two years yet. This October will be two years since I started on staff here. That. I think of all the days and nights I've had here, all the conversations, that's a long time. That's a long time to be stuck and waiting. And so as I was thinking about about two years of knowing that Jesus is going to fulfill his word, that you're going to be sent to Rome, this is Paul, and wondering how this is going to be taking place, but still stuck in this endless cycle of being called before the authorities and then rehashing the same thing over and over again, I was thinking to myself, pondering in my, my own heart and imagination, how did Paul spend his time for those two years? What did he do each day? He didn't have Facebook. He wasn't watching cat videos on YouTube. Right? There's no, there's no ESPN Ocho on the flat screen in the corner of his, of his cell. It does say that he had a level of freedom and that friends were allowed to visit him, but how did he spend day, I mean, over six, 700, over 700 days, how did he spend each day waiting? All right, I came up with seven things that I think Paul did while he was waiting. All right, you want to see him? I think these are seven of the primary things that Paul did every day while he was waiting. Just waiting on God, and I think these are the s- these are seven things that we should do uh, as well when we're waiting for God to move and to fulfill His word. Seven things to do. So this is my title for this: seven things to do when you're stuck in prison for two years. I hope this never comes in handy for you. You will wait, though. You will wait on God. This is this is a. Uh, an exercise that every single person is called to in their relationship with the Lord to wait on him. And so these are, these are ways that we wait on the Lord. And this is uh, based on the writings of Paul and the life of Paul. These are uh, seven things that I think he did. First of all, I think he prayed without ceasing. Amen? Everybody say, pray at all times. Secondly, I think Paul sang psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So he prayed... And he sang, you know, the the cheesy phrase, sing like no one's listening. I think Paul sang like no one was, no, he sang like Jesus was listening, like Jesus was there with them. Third, he meditated day and night on the word of God. (coughs) Fourthly, he remembered what God had already done. That's a spiritual discipline that each of us are called to. Remember, do not forget what God has already done, because if you do, If I do, if we forget what God has done, then we are untethered from the foundation of his work in our lives. This is when we start to doubt in unhealthy ways, when we no longer remember God's word. Number five, I think he savored God. And I chose this word really intentionally. I think he savored God as well as the experiences of friendship that he got, limited as they might be, with thanks, thankfulness and joy. Here's a really simple example of this. If you grew up somewhere or eating a certain cuisine, and then you move somewhere else, and those, those tastes aren't available to you, you miss them. All right, so, so I, had, I grew up in the Philippines for seven years, and there are many flavors in the Philippines that are not available here. So one of the things, as silly as this might be, that I most look forward to when we went back uh, this past April for a couple weeks, several of us on, on the missions trip, one of the things I most look forward to was tasting those things that you can't taste here in our daily life. So what's, what's the word for that? You savor it, right? You savor it. And so Paul, who's stuck he doesn't have the level of freedom to go where he wants to go or do what he wants to do or eat the things he wants to eat. I think that every time God gave a gift of presence of a friend visiting or just a special moment where he remembered something, I think that Paul savored it. And we'll, we'll see this from the word. I'm going to give scriptures for each one of these. Uh, the sixth one and the seventh one are really the key of what I want to teach this morning before we, before we get into the passage, which we're going to read and there's two ways to wait on God that are both sides of the coin. So waiting on God is a two-sided coin. There's There's the part that's just passive, patiently waiting, biding time, and that's part of what it means to wait on God. But then there's the other side of the coin, which is actively waiting on God, and I think I think that many of us, I know I do, I I think that many of us struggle to live a life of balance between patiently, passively waiting on God and actively, eagerly waiting on Him at the same time. Let me give a very, very concrete example of this. So who has the profession in, in our economy, in our world, where uh, their title is wait that what they do is to wait to wait on someone yeah a waiter right a waiter a waiter a waitress their literal job is to wait on you now think about think about what that entails in their job you go into a restaurant and you know when you walk into a restaurant you've never been in before, and you're not sure if you should seat yourself or wait to be seated? And there's that awkward moment where you're like, ah, no, no, sir, we seat you. Or you're standing there, and then they look at you, and they're like, just, just seat yourself. <laughs> it seems like you always choose the wrong one, uh, whichever it is. But so, so the first job of a waiter is to, is to provide space for you to sit. And then you sit, and what's the second thing they do? Not not yet, drinks, right? They ask, what would you like to drink? Can I start you off with a drink? And then they come back and then they say, are you ready to order or would you like more time? And then when you're ready to order, they take your order and then they go and take it back and they make sure it's prepared and then they bring it to you when it's ready and sometime about three to five minutes after you've been served, they'll typically come back and say, how is everything today? Right? Is everything made to your liking? And then about 10 minutes later, they'll come back and say, Would you like any dessert or will this be all? Can I get you a refill? And so on and so forth. Now, notice the delicate balance in the waiting profession between patience and space given to the person and activity where there's a proactive asking what you desire. If you went into a restaurant and you just sat there for an hour, and the waitress or waiter never came over to you and never took your drink uh, or your order, there would be a problem, right? You know when you're trying to get out of a restaurant and you're like, you haven't seen your waitress in 45 minutes and you're like, I need the bill, I gotta go. But then there's the opposite end of the spectrum when a restaurant's really busy but you're not really in a rush but you can tell they want you to get so they can put someone else in the table, right? And that's, that's where they're like hovering over you. You ready? Can I clear your plates? Can I get? And they're just trying to move on so they can get another tip and another person in, in, in the seat. This is the delicate balance of waiting. There needs to be space for you to be able to eat and have relationship and conversation. But there also needs to be an active waiting so that your cup doesn't go empty. So that, so that when you're ready, the food is ready. Waiting on God is the same thing. Waiting on God does not mean you sit back passively and wait for God to do something. That's a piece of it. Waiting on God means you're asking him, can I fill your drink for you? Is there anything else I can do for you today? How can I serve you today? That is to wait on God actively. And then there's the side of waiting on God where he says, it's not yet time, so be still and just know that I am God. Quiet your heart like a new, like a weaned child, like I prayed earlier. Do you see the balance between these two things? So Paul, stuck in prison for two years, is both patiently and actively waiting on God. All right, I'm going to show you scriptures from Paul's own writings. Uh, that speak to each of these things in really cool ways. All right, the prayer one is pretty obviously, uh, pretty obvious. I think all of you could probably quote off the top of your head uh, scriptures that would speak to this. That that Paul was praying while he was waiting. He writes in Romans chapter one, verses nine and ten. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow. By God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's already written this by the time he's in prison in the governor's palace. So, you know, this is several years later, two to three years later, and he, this prayer is continuing. Somehow, some way, he might at last succeed in coming to them. But he's praying without ceasing. Ephesians 1 says, I do not cease, I never stop giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then the really well, well-known verse in First Thessalonians 5, where it says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. One of the really challenging things uh, that Francis Chan writes in letters to the church is he, he had a policy for his leaders at his church that every single leader had to spend a minimum of an hour in prayer uh, a day. And if not, then they were disqualifying themselves uh, from uh, the leadership in his congregation. Now, that may seem legalistic or uh, or overly burdensome, but that's a pretty... Standard healthy challenge for us as communers and followers of Christ is it not to pray every day? How else do we listen and hear God but to pray? To so pray without ceasing, Paul says. And don't hear me saying this from a, a standpoint of self righteousness. Hearing me, hear me uh, say this from a standpoint of also wanting to learn and grow. That we are to be a people of prayer in all circumstances. All right, secondly, I think he's saying, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. (laughs) This is funny. Talk to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what that that word means, address. So address one another, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but also singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So speak and sing constantly in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then we see this example actually played out in his life when he was in prison in Philippi earlier, several years earlier. He and Silas, it says about midnight in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Is that awesome? Paul and Silas singing in prison. So I I think... It's only fair to say this is what he's still doing as he's waiting in these two years. He is praying and he's singing. It also, um, in Colossians, I was thinking about reading this passage earlier this morning, but I went with chapter 1. In chapter 3, he says much the same thing, sing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Third, he meditated. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 12 is one of the most fascinating Mysterious passages in the New Testament where Paul talks about the mystical experience he had of being swept up into the third heaven. He says, he's speaking in the third person, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise and he heard things that cannot be told, which may not be uttered. What Paul was doing was he was meditating on God. He was praying. He was meditating on Jesus. He was in the spirit when God swept him up in some sort of spiritual experience into the third heaven. In Romans chapter 12, the famous verse, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you renew your mind? You meditate. On God's Word. You chew on it. You steady it. And as you meditate and chew on His Word, you bring your situation in, and you look at your situation in light of His Word, meditating upon it, and He transforms and renews your mind. 2 Corinthians 10 is a very similar passage where he's talking about tearing down strongholds. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's meditating on his life and on the word of God. All right, so I think Paul spent time in meditation on a daily basis. Fourth, he remembered. Uh, Our son's, our third child's name, Zach, um, we spell it Z-A-K because that's the transliteration of the Hebrew word zakar. And that's where the name Zechariah comes from in the scriptures. Zechariah, which is spelled with an E. Um, And Zechariah, anybody know what that means? It means the Lord remembers. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. Which is a beautiful statement that God does not forget. He remembers. And we are called to remember. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In Ephesians 1, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. In 2 Timothy 1, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. In Philemon, there's only one chapter in Philemon, but so as to not be confusing, I put Philemon 1. Verses 4 and 5, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. When we're waiting on God, we must remember. Remember others, what God has done in their life, and remember what God has done in our lives, as well as what he has done throughout history. Fifth, Paul savored with thankfulness and joyfulness the presence of God and his goodness. He writes to Philemon in verse 7, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In Galatians 5, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. The second fruit of the Spirit is joyfulness, joy. In Colossians 1, he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. in like God, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of Moses and Abraham, of David, of his own son. If we can't savor that, we are dead. If we cannot be thankful and filled with joy at that salvation, we are unalive. He writes in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through whom we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. And he goes on to say, Because the love of Christ has been poured out through God the Father. All right, all of this is wrapped in this. He waited with patience. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The fourth fruit is patience. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, what's, what's the first descriptor of love here? Love is patient. It's not hurried. It's not rushed. It's patient. Love is patient and it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. He says, to a spiritual son, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, but I received mercy for this reason. This is right after he says that he's the chief of all sinners. And then immediately he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect what? Patience. As an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Jesus has perfect patience, and we are to love in the same way as him with Patience. Ephesians 4, he says, and this is to the church, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. I think we need to read that one out loud together. This is where he's speaking very specifically to how the church is to be structured. Let's read that. Ephesians 4, 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. Sorry for the typo. And then he waited on God actively. There's the patient side of it, and then there's the active side. And his, his word that he combines with waiting on God actively is eagerly. Everybody say, eagerly wait. eagerly wait. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction a little bit? Eagerly wait. But if you have children and uh, a birthday is coming, you know exactly what eagerly waiting looks like. Right? So we are called to eagerly, just like a child waiting for their birthday, we are called to eagerly wait on God in the same way. How many days? How many days left? Can we invite our friends? Can we, you know, there's this like active, like, let's make this happen, even though there still needs to be the passing of time. In Galatians 5.5, 5, he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In Philippians 3, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. We await, we wait. For the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And in Romans 8, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. We eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So when I think about, when I meditate and think about the writings and the life of Paul, and I think about the two years that he spent, I think this is how he spent those two years, praying without ceasing, daily singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, meditating each day and night on the word of God, intentionally remembering what God has done both in his life and in others' lives, savoring God, his salvation, and his presence with thankfulness and joy. He patiently waited on God, And he actively waited on God. These are the similar same things that I would encourage us in our own waiting on God. Does that make sense? These are ways that God has called us to wait on him. So we wait the fulfillment of his word. All right. Now, you guys have what it takes. I'm going to read through these chapters together. I'm not going to comment too much on them. Uh, There's not too much to add. We're just going to let the story of God's work in Paul's life wash over us. Can we do that? All right, let's engage this together. This is Acts chapter 25. He has been waiting for two years doing those things. Verse 1, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, that's the new governor, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and their principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Sound familiar? They've tried this before. They're going to try it again. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So he says, I'm not going to take him down here to Jerusalem. You come up with me to Caesarea, which was uh, the right move. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And he had brought with him uh, some of the Jewish leaders. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, so he's going to play the political game, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. In other words, this is exactly where I should be tried as a Roman citizen. Where I ought to be tried, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Verse 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. This is a famous uh, line from Paul. This is sort of his trump card as a Roman citizen that he's been holding in his pocket for the last two years as he's been waiting on God patiently and actively. And finally the moment comes, and I don't know if it was a stirring of the Holy Spirit or just he decided he had had enough, but he says, I appeal to Caesar. And in Roman law, obviously the court of Caesar was the highest court in the land. And this would have been the next step up from the governor uh, uh, tribunal. And so Paul appeals as a Roman citizen to uh, be seen and his case to be heard by Caesar. Now, there were many, many, many cases that came before Caesar. So he's not ending the waiting period. He's only extending it further. Because now, if things go according to plan, he gets bumped onto a brand new list. And that's where Acts is going to end, waiting to be seen. And no one knows how long he waited, but it was a long time. So Festus, verse 12, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And you can kind of imagine Festus uh, sort of like washing his hands of the whole situation and saying, Thank goodness, let's be rid of this problem that has been festering here. Verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. This uh, Agrippa is... um, Uh, the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, who had slaughtered the children uh, when Jesus was a child. Of all of the Herods, he was the least corrupt and the most um, uh, in tune with the Jewish needs, and he also seemed to be a man of legitimate Jewish faith. So Agrippa, and Bernice is not his wife, it's his sister, and you can read all about them, and they lived a very, very interesting life. Agrippa... Um, Although he was committed to the Jewish people, he ended up siding with Rome in AD 70 when they rebelled and the temple fell. Agrippa sided with Rome. So he plays both sides. Um, So Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders Of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid before him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. That's the only time in the New Testament this phrase is used, with great pomp. So this is a very, like, royal setting. They've got their, you know, instruments of of rule, and they've got their robes on, and the crown, and they come into trumpets, and all this is taking place uh, around Paul. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So there's quite a gathering here. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, and he says this in front of uh, Paul, which is interesting. So Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. I'm sure Paul is standing there saying, I can give you something to write. <laughs> for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26 So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now, that's interesting imagery, isn't it? Paul stretches out his hand to make his verbal defense. There's an interesting parallel here between Moses stretching out his hand and speaking to Pharaoh, the authority of that time in that land, when they were wrongfully uh, imprisoned in Egypt, and and, um, Paul, the apostolic leader, in the same prophetic line as Moses, stretching out his hand to speak to the rulers and the king, the authorities. So he stretches out his hand and he says this, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Remember, Agrippa was actually legitimately involved with the Jewish people more than his predecessors had been. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth... And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. This is Acts 9. You're familiar with the story. With the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's an interesting phrase. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Here's my challenge to you this week. Go study that phrase and learn what it means. If you don't know, you go do the work. Can you do it? You won't. We won't we won't really learn something until we put in the work. So you friends go find out what that means study it and learn. Paul Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Verse 15 and I said, "Who are you, Lord?" And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to these things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. By faith in me. That's us, right? Those who have received forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus, this is the Roman governor, he said with a loud voice, he interrupts him, Paul, you are out of your mind. You're great learning is driving you out of your mind. Have you ever heard someone teach or speak, or or teach on a subject, and you're like, you're going nuts, because, I don't know, like absent-minded professor, or what, but he's like overwhelmed by Paul. What Paul does, and what we uh, moderns have a hard time understanding, is that whenever Paul gave a speech, or wrote his letters, he wove within it, both Jewish a teaching, as well as Greek philosophy. He even quotes from Greek poets in his epistles. So in our scripture, we have quotations from Greek poets, like pagan poets. So Paul, what he was constantly doing was he was taking the philosophies and learning of his day, taking the Jewish teachings that he grew up in, and he's weaving them together. And Festus is completely overwhelmed by this. It says, you are out of your mind. Verse 25, but Paul immediately says back to him, I'm not out of my mind most excellent, fastest, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. Remember, in Paul's mission, we looked at this last week, in Acts 9, God had said, I will send you to rulers and to kings, and so here Paul is, for the first time in his ministry, standing in front of a king, and he is speaking directly to him, for the king knows And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. This is interesting. Paul, looking at the king, sees faith, genuine faith in him. He says, I know that you believe, at least least the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew prophets. And Agrippa said to Paul, and it's like one of those moments where it could go either way. And, and just, would, I'm sure Paul was praying in his spirit, God, this is the moment for a king, the king of the Jewish people to embrace you as the risen Lord. But Agrippa responds, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Verse 30, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. So King Agrippa cuts it off. Verse 31, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So even though there's not an agreement with him, not a submission to this teaching of Christ's lordship, there is a recognition that, that he does not deserve to die. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And that's where we'll pick up next week where Paul goes uh, to Rome and what happens on the way. So as we close our time, uh, praise team, you can come up. The last song we're gonna sing is very uh, related to this, and so it's going to be a new song, but I would invite you to meditate and chew on the words of this song, because it's like speaking to this waiting on God and choosing to be in a place of, um, of rejoicing even in hardship. Let's pray and ask the Lord to seal his word in our hearts, to teach us and that we might change more and more into his image. God, and we thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you for the example of Paul and his own teachings, teaching us how to wait on you, how to pray without ceasing, how to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, how to meditate, how to savor you with thankfulness and joy, how to remember what you've done, God, in our lives, how to wait for you patiently, wait actively on you, We pray that we would be a people that wait on God. A famous passage, Isaiah 40, those who wait on the Lord, rise up. (laughs) They run and do not grow weary. They walk and they do not faint. Teach us how to wait on you, God. Teach us how to wait on you as we're waiting for the fulfillment of your promises and word. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We saw Paul navigate that over the last weeks, seasoning his speech with salt, listening to the Spirit, how to respond in each difficult situation. It was He was brought before others. We too have been given the same wisdom in Jesus Christ to know how to speak, to proclaim the glory of God. Let's close our time with the doxology. Can we sing that together? Praise God from... Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May you walk in his light this week abiding with him, filled with his wisdom, learning constantly how to wait on him through his word and his presence. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for being with us this week. Go with God. Have a wonderful afternoon.